Say It Loud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, this episode of Corner Table Talk. Today, my esteemed guest is none other than Isaiah Thomas, who uh, is a familiar name to so many of us. He's a two-time NBA champion, NBA Finals MVP, 12-time NBA All-Star. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. NCAA championship as a sophomore, I might add, and you were also voted the most outstanding player. So we all, we, we know about your basketball career, Isaiah. It's been phenomenal. Um, Hall of Famer, ba- NBA Hall of Fame, college basketball Hall of Fame. You're also a successful businessman, the chairman and CEO of Isaiah International Holdings. You're a proud father and a husband. So we're welcome, we're welcoming you and so, so pleased to have you, man. Thank you for joining us on Corner Table today. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me, and thank you for the kind words and warm introduction. Oh, my pleasure. So I start things off, Isaiah, with what I call short order questions, kind of restaurant terminology, and it's just some kind of simple questions to get us rolling and find out some some cool details about you, if you don't mind. So uh, my first one is, what is in heavy rotation on your playlist? It definitely ain't my dog barking. <laughs> um, heavy rotation right now. Uh, I've, I got some old school going on because of um, the IG uh, live uh, versus Earth, Wind and Fire versus Isley Brothers. So I've been killing a lot of Earth, Wind and Fire. You know, they from Chicago. So I've been uh, just going back and, and all my Earth, Wind and Fire uh, old cuts. That's what I've been jamming to the last two days. Yeah, man, I, I hear you. The Isley Brothers, man, just and they they keep it coming too, man, all through the years from, you know, way, way back in the 60s. And, and I can listen to I can listen to the Isley Brothers all day long, man. So I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, what is your desired footwear these days? What's on your feet? Uh, I'm, I'm still uh, wearing gym shoes, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, what kind? What brand? I, I go a- anywhere from uh, to Adidas to Nike. You know, the the thing is, I'm not loyal to any brand, so I, I can wear whatever. You know, when I was playing, I had to be loyal to one brand. But, you know, I'm mainly Adidas, Nike right now in terms okay. of shoe wear. Okay. How about your favorite vacation destination? When you're looking to get away, man, what, what place really is the your go-to spot? My, my go-to spot for... But just tranquility and, you know, peace of mind and quietness is um, St. John's and the Virgin Islands. Oh. Um, you know, it's a it's still a it's still a well-kept secret, you mm-hmm. know, um, and that that's kind of where I go, even though a lot of people know about it. It just it just seems to be a little a little slice of heaven that's still there. That's uh, kind of quiet. Sure. The, le- the less busy of the U.S. Virgin Islands, St. Croix, St. Thomas, a little bit busier, but uh, St. John is is pretty cool. Trunk Bay, I think, is the, the beautiful beach there, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Right. All right. What is your favorite meal? It is still beans and cornbread. <laughs> <laughs> you say it's still. Yeah, you know, Where did that start? It started from my mom. You know, we were very poor. So, uh, you know, we 
you know, that was the meal that we always, uh, that was the go-to meal, beans and cornbread. <coughs> Excuse me. And whenever my wife wants to uh, make me happy or when I'm, you know, down and out or whatever, you just go on a pot of pinto beans and whip up some cornbread and I'm good to go. You, and that does the trick. You know, it's funny, man. I, I had Norm Nixon on a few weeks ago and his go-to dish is a plate his mom makes for him, cabbage and cornbread. Yes, yes, yes. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, or none of the above? I would uh, pretty much say um, vegan uh, in terms of, um, you know, I don't eat any red meat. Every now and then um, I'll try some fish, but um, I try to stay away from anything that has a face. And last question, what are you doing for your workout? These days. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Huh? <laughs> he laughs. Yeah. I, I used to run, but now I walk. <laughs> uh, Walking's good. Walking do can do the trick. Yeah, I do a lot of walking, do some push-ups and some sit-ups. But uh, that's about it. You know, that's my, it. my wife, uh, she's the fitness nut in the family. She's, uh, you know, she's keeping us all in shape. We're all trying to keep up with her now. Yeah. Yeah. That's great, man. I know I had stopped going to the gym, of course, during COVID and uh, found other ways to to try and stay in shape. But uh, as they say, Father Time is undefeated, man. So, you know, I guess it's just downhill, but we're going to we're going to fight the good fight. So um, thank you again, Isaiah, for joining. And, you know, today I was talking to our dear friend, Ambassador Shabazz earlier and she mentioned uh, an interview, uh, actually more of a conversation than an interview that that you had done and, and brought my attention to it. And I have a you know a number of pages of notes and questions and conversation topics I want to get to. But when I watched this uh, conversation this morning, I I just felt really moved by it and wanted to go right to that, if if you don't mind. And it's a conversation you had with Magic back in 2018, I believe it was. And uh, where you went, I, I believe it were it, it, it took place in his offices. Um, but uh, you and he hadn't spoken for a while. And, um, you know, those of us who follow the NBA have, have heard different things about why that might have been. But what I'm more interested in and just wanted to kind of get your take on was that conversation. And I, and I have to tell you, man, as a, as a black man and as a former athlete, someone who's admired you guys and and the, the growth of the NBA, the prominence of the players and just how you've come to represent culture and, and you know, just the influence that you have globally to watch you two sit four feet apart, almost knee to knee and have the kind of conversation that you had and touch on the things that intersected me as just a normal citizen's life, you know, the, the Jackson five and, and baseball, and you made fun of magic socks. And I, <laughs> I recognize those socks, man, because it's kind of like a little, little bit of a LA thing, you know, but they were kind of fly at the same time. But you guys had a really, really meaningful conversation, Isaiah, and so much came out of that, man, about how serious you were about competing, about the sport, about winning. And at the end, the embrace that uh, it brought tears to my eyes. You guys were, were having your own set of emotions. But do you mind just kind of unpacking that that experience a little bit, man? And and it was just just a beautiful interview and a really special moment, man, that that all of us that got to watch it uh, could could witness. But do you mind just just taking us through that a little bit? It, it was a it was a powerful, emotional moment for us. And all the things that you just described 
Um, we didn't know at that time the impact that it would have on people who 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 watch and who was watching. Uh, we was just you know two guys trying to figure it out and, and, and come together, not necessarily trying to make a space for for others to be able to come together. However, after the interview, we we realized, and I realized every time that I went through the airport, how important that moment was, not only for us, but as you mentioned, for, for yourself and others, because people would, would come up to me and say, hey, I'm, I'm so glad that you and Magic had that conversation because it inspired me to go back and have a conversation with you know, one of my old friends that I had fell out with and, and hadn't spoken to for years. But, you know, watching you two uh, come together made me go back and find my old friend and come together. And, you know, we again, we were just we were just trying to, you know, have a have a good conversation, but also trying to come together and, and build our friendship back up. Uh, so it, it was a powerful moment for us, but it turned out being a powerful moment for all those who watched also, and we're glad that happened, but that wasn't the intent. Uh, mm-hmm. The intent was really just, you know, to to be vulnerable, let your guard down, and and uh, really on camera say, uh, you know, how we felt about each other. Yeah, man, thank you. That, that you know, it was really beautiful, man. You know, we had spoken to Jackie Jackson uh, a few weeks ago. We had him on the podcast. And uh, Jackie, man, is just, he's just that cat, man. I, I love Jackie. And he got emotional, Isaiah, during one of the moments. He was talking about the first time that the group went overseas. They, they were flying to Heathrow, uh, to London. And the pilot came on the plane and announced that they had the Jackson 5. And you got to remember, you know, back then, man, there was no internet. So you really didn't know the news like we know it now. You don't know. They didn't know what to expect. And there were 10,000 people at the airport waiting for them. And, and the plane landed and the crowds going crazy. And, you know, it's their first trip overseas and, and they were all taken by it. But they went and they, they went into the inner cities in London, man. And, and the Afri- the, the black kids, the black English kids were coming up to them and and were just so emotional and taken by these young black kids that they, you know, they just they hadn't seen. We hadn't seen us as Americans hadn't seen young black kids that were like these guys. We all like you and you and Magic, you know, you were going through the songs. And I, you know, I'd said to Jackie, man, I knew every one of each of your parts, you know, those songs so well. But you guys, you the NBA players, man, are also exporters of our culture and representative of what, you know, we aspire to be as black men and, and that you project that image so well around the globe, man. I just that that was also how that impacted me, that anybody can watch you two in that moment, be vulnerable, be honest, be so articulate. Um, and it gives it empowers, I think, the rest of us to feel a little release that way and feel like, yeah, we can do that too. We can be like that too. Well, well, thank you for that. And, you know, we were, we were always, uh, that way. And, and, um, we were always conscious of, of representing, you know, our culture and in terms of black men and, and how we treated people and, and how we presented ourselves. Uh, so, uh, thank you. Thank you for saying that because that was something that we were very conscious of. Even when we would when we would hug and embrace and kiss each other, you know mm-hmm. that was. If you remember uh, back in the day, that was a big thing uh, because you know male masculinity. You wasn't supposed to have 
any emotion. You you were supposed to be tough. And, and so us breaking down those barriers during that time, especially in sport, where it's all about masculinity and, and trying to compete. Uh, so we were we were we were definitely um, trendsetters in terms of, you know, opening up emotionally, being vulnerable and letting people know, hey, man, I, this dude is more than a friend to me. He's family. This is my brother. You know, and, and, and when I greet and meet my brothers and my sisters, I don't give them a handshake. I hug them and I kiss them. Right. That's how we meet and greet each other as as family members. Yeah. And, you know, our relationship had gone beyond, you know, a friendship. I couldn't give them a, a cold handshake yeah. like, hey, man, how you doing? No, it, it had to be a warm embrace like I would do with one of my brothers when I saw them. Yeah, man, you know, and, and you're a little bit younger than me, but you can probably relate. And I remember a time when we used to speak to one another in the street. You know, we would walk past one another and, and nod, you know, give a little acknowledgement, man, you know. And, um, you know, I, I never said to my father until maybe his very last day, I never told him that I loved him. You know, it just wasn't something that we expressed love towards one another in many ways. We had a fantastic relationship. But I tell my son ad nauseum that I love him, <laughs> you know, without any any hesitancy, man. And I think to your point, Isaiah, and, and the, the images of you in magic as these just, you know, iconic athletes and, and people that we look up to, you're OK being vulnerable. You're OK showing some emotion. I think you gave permission to the rest of us, man, to well, show that, too. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, that that definitely was the intent. And I'm, and I'm glad that that it happened that way, although we took a lot of flack for it. Yeah, you did. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was definitely well worth it. Uh, yeah. You know, families and friends, you know, being able to say I love you. Though that that's big, and it's it's one thing to show it, but it's also good to hear it. And when you combine the two together in terms of showing it and hearing it, uh, love can be very powerful. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well said. So I'm gonna um, change topics here and just let's talk a little basketball, a little college basketball. I watched the uh, NCAA's March Madness, and um, I have to say the girls' final game was exciting and a phenomenal finish. The the final men's game was not as exciting as the semifinal game, and that one will go down, you know, in history. That that last shot that uh, Suggs hit, the bank shot, was you yeah. know that's going to be a, that's a Christian Leitner moment, I guess you would you might call that. What what's your what was your impression, Isaiah, of the of March Madness in the tournament this year? Well, first of all, I thought they did a great job uh, during COVID uh, to put it all together. They simulated uh, what the NBA had done with the bubble and bringing everybody together, all the teams together in Indianapolis and also in San Antonio, putting everybody together and keeping them confined. So they did a great job with that. In terms of the competition um, on the men's side, I always felt that, that Baylor was very underrated. Mm-hmm. I always felt that they were the better team. I felt last year that, you know, that they were the best team uh, going and, and then COVID hit. And so when they came back this year, you know, I just thought that, you know, that they would be the team to look out for. And uh, that's what proved to be the point. 
Do you see when you look at these guys, man, these athletes now, do you see how the game is elevating? I mean, it looks to me like that, but I didn't play at your level. I played in college, but had nowhere near the career that you did. But I love the game and I and I watch basketball. But when I see these cats now, man, they they can play these boys ball. Do you see that? Do you do you see the elevation of the game? Absolutely. Uh, not not only can they play, but, um, you know, the. Um, you know, the fitness level has definitely improved. When you look at, you know, the their imagination in terms of how far they dare to shoot from the basket now. When we was playing, you know, you you would practice that in the summer, but you you would never really do it in the game. Uh, but you see uh, how the imagination has been stretched, um, how they expanded the boundaries of 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 um, of the shooting which has really, you know, opened up the game a lot more. Sure. And I remember, you know, I played in the, in the 70s. I went to UMass, and I know my UMass teammates who are going to listen to this would be uh, upset with me if I didn't mention that. So, But one of our uh, – I played from 75 to 79. One of my teammates actually transferred from the Indiana undefeated team, uh, Mark Haymore, and ended up playing yeah, with yeah. us at, at UMass. Yeah. And um, I'm but, sure you he know, had some stories about Coach Knight. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> he had a few. Yeah, Mark was a great, great guy. Man, he's he's passed away. Rest in peace. But uh, he was phenomenal. But uh, going back to that period, relative to your point about conditioning, we didn't lift weights. You know, it, it was there was the you know the the rumor that if you did. It would throw off your jumper or, you know, something that was pro- that was not true. You could you could balance both. But did you do any weight training at Indiana? Was that part of the conditioning program? It, it was part of it, but it was begrudgingly and half-hearted. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and, and also, you know, nutrition-wise, in terms of the way you had to eat, mm-hmm. you know, back then you just ate anything. You know, yeah. where these guys are at now from a training standpoint, uh, they train 24-7. They're very conscious of what they eat, what they don't eat. So their body is in, is in, in tip-top shape uh, from, a, from a training, weightlifting, nutrition standpoint. They're really hitting on all cylinders, which makes them, you know, a little bit better. Yeah, and I would agree. When you look at LeBron and and how he's been able to extend his career, or Tom Brady, yeah. you know, and, and to your point about what they eat and how they take it's it's a it's an endeavor to just make sure that they are in, ingesting the right food, working out with trainers and stuff that uh, yeah. we really didn't have access to. You know, back back in the seventies for sure when we were still playing in Canvas Cons. You know, that was that was our sneaker. <laughs> well, Brad, you know at. At some point in time, all of us, they say father time gets us, right? And we'll lose that step or we'll lose that jumping ability. But everything else kind of stays. You only, right. you know, you you don't get any faster. You may get a little slower and you may not jump as high. But if if we would have still trained and kept our body in shape the way these guys do now, I'm sure a lot of us could extend it and played into the 40s also. That's true, man. You know, and I, I had actually just had hip replacement a couple of years ago. And I think back to, you know, playing ball on in the park on mm-hmm. asphalt again in sneakers that really, you know, if I if I walk in them these days, those old canvas cons, I'm like my knees hurt, you know, with the with the kind of um, the way that sneakers, tennis shoes have evolved. 
Um, and again, with the strength and conditioning that these athletes uh, go through, hopefully they will avoid some of the injuries and, and hip and knee replacements that some of us of a certain age are having to uh, having to go through now for, for our days on the court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it is showing, you know, because of, again, like you mentioned, Tom Brady. I mean, what more is he going to lose from a physical standpoint? You know, his, his, as long as he's lifting weights and, and training properly, you know, he can keep his arm strength, right? He's not, he never ran a 4-4 four, four or 4-5. Four, you know, as long as he's got a good offensive line, he's going to be all right. <laughs> and that Tampa Bay style offense was perfect for him. So he's, he's fit right in. I'd say before we move off of the NCAA, um, you know, there's, of course, every year the tournament comes up and it's so popular. So the, the discussion again around whether or not amateur athletes deserve to be paid. You've got Nike who makes money. The schools make money. Coaches are well paid. The networks are all making money. Yet these kids, you know, can't their, their jerseys sell out in, in sports stores, but they're not they're not going to be paid from any of that. It's a, it's a, I know it's a, a deep subject and it's, there's no easy answer, but do you have a take on that? Yeah, I, I have two takes on it. Um, you know, yes, they should be paid. But the, the other thing is, you know, the, the classifications that we, we consent to at a, at a very early age, um, these classifications really impact your life, your life trajectory. You know, so so being classified, um, you know, as a student athlete, what does that really mean when you sign those scholarship papers? Now, student athlete sounds good. You know, it's a nice, catchy phrase. But, you know, within that scholarship paper, now you sign the contract, which takes away all of your rights. And just as a prisoner, you become property of the state as a student athlete, you really do become property of the university. And those are the things that, you know, so when you use the word amateurism, you know, what does that mean legally? Student athlete, what does that mean legally? So these classifications that we consent to and unknowingly just toss around because they're nice words. Okay, they're, they have legal definition, legal description, and yeah, the player should be paid, in my opinion. However, when you consent to being a student athlete and you sign those scholarship papers, what rights are you signing away? Mm-hmm. And, and, and should you have legal representation now at the table when you sign in a scholarship? What does that mean? What rights are you giving up? Mm-hmm. Those, those are things that, that need to be looked into. Of course. And, you know, at, at that at that time in a young person's career coming out of high school, you know, you're anxious for the next level. You're not sophisticated. Chances are some of our parents would not be familiar with the documents that we're signing. So to your point, yeah, some legal representation um, might be uh, might be a wise thing thing to do. Turning to the NBA and uh, what we all, you know, saw last year and the, the protests and the pandemic and the league being very quick to react and shut down, uh, very, you know, midway in March. Um, what's what's your feeling about how the how the league responded? Kind of its its narrative, what its narrative has been around the the social justice issue. Adam Silver seems to be 
leading the way um, in a way that we can all kind of um, appreciate. But what I'm curious to hear what what's your take about how the league has handled this this challenging year that we've had? I think as a as a league, the league has gone about as far as it can go in terms of uh, what the owners have contributed, what what the league itself has basically said um, they will do. Then it comes back to us as a society. Right. Uh, It comes back to, you know, again, these racial classifications. And we have to come together and say, okay, we we said we wanted to have the race conversation, but have we really had it? (laughs) You know, we've talked about it. And, you know, has has race really been understood, you know, that, you know, it's a it's a made up concept that we have all consented to fall into, you know, black, white, brown, yellow, you know, these These artificial colors that we have been given has taken us out of, you know, the human race category, you know. And so when you want to talk about having a race conversation, first thing we need to discuss is, does race truly exist? Now, scientifically, we know it doesn't exist. So the second thing is, why are we consenting to it? Okay. Yes, I'm with you. And so... So, so our beliefs, you know, it's like, you know, when you when you were young, you believed in Santa Claus. <laughs> right. And mm-hmm. then when you got older, you found out there was no Santa Claus. Well, I think we're all old enough now that we know that race doesn't exist. But yet we still consent to being governed and ruled by these racial classifications. And what does that mean? That means that if you're classified as white, which is the highest on the on the on the status category, because we're not talking about race. We're talking about status. Right. White is a status. Black is a status. Brown people of color, yellow people. I mean, listen to what we're saying, Brad. Right. Mm-hmm. Black people, white people, brown people, yellow people, people of color. I mean, are, are we really that naive? And we have been that naive. Right. But I think we're all smart enough now that we can rise out of these color-coded boxes that that separates us, very similar to our apartheid. When you look up the definition for apartheid, it, it states that it takes you out of the human race and it puts you in these color-coded boxes. That's what we're in. Well, Isaiah, you know, you bring up South Africa, and that's an interesting analogy to me. So when... Apartheid was broken up back in the 90s, I believe that was. Um, they had following that what they call the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, which allowed the victims of apartheid to have some of the perpetrators of apartheid show up in a courtroom, admit to the atrocities, apologize there for letting the victim hear the apology and forgive and move on. Clearly, nothing as formal as that has ever happened in this country. And, um, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates made a strong case for reparations. And there's, you know, that ongoing discussion. Do you feel that there needs to be some kind of recognition? I mean, you talk about a race discussion before there can be reconciliation. Have, have we had that? No, we have not had that. We've said that we want to have the conversation and it's time for the conversation. 
But every time somebody tries to talk about the conversation, we never really have the conversation because we still consent to being black, white, brown, yellow, blue, green, purple, and orange people, right? And until we can rise out of these classifications and get back to the human race and understand that, hey, you know, the, the international community, white is not a nationality. Black is not a nationality. People of color is not a nationality. Brown people is not a nationality. And in this country, we have been taken out of our human race category in our nationality and have been placed as other. And, you know, in this country, when you're born as white, you don't have to fight for 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 rights. You're given birthrights. When you black, brown, a woman, or any other uh, color, you have to fight for civil rights. You have to fight to be incorporated into the union of states. And so when we when we agree to these classifications, what do they really mean legally and constitutionally and also in the international community? Brad, you've traveled outside of the United States. And, and when you travel outside of the United States, you classify as an American. Mm-hmm. When you come back into the United States, you say you black. Why is that? You know, you, you're you are a, a spokesperson. And, um, you know, thank you for for that. I would recently saw I don't know if you got to see a night in Miami, you know, with with uh, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, uh, Sam Cooke and Jim Brown. And the conversations, the, the thing that was really that left such an impression on me was the uh, Kemp Powers wrote the wrote the screenplay, the dialogue, the conversation between those guys, man. If you're talking to Magic and Magic's talking to Jay-Z and Jay-Z is talking to Denzel and those kinds of conversations are evolving out of those kinds of meetings, then these I feel like we're going to we'll get somewhere with this conversation. I mean, you, you're so influential. But are, are those the kind of conversations that you that you're having with contemporaries? We, we can have those conversations. However, there there's been a breakdown in terms of our collectiveness, in terms of moving our people to truth and understanding history. When you and I came up, um, you know, in in the 60s and the 70s, the music spoke to truth. There was a collectiveness that was coming from the community about how how we untangle ourselves from these classifications of being declassified, keyword, being declassified from the human race. We wanted to be seen as human again. You know, the, the, the Montgomery uh, March, when they said, I, I, I am a man, we, we were talking about treating us as human beings. And, and Brad, and, and I'm sure you remember this, you know, when you were growing up, just as I do, if somebody called you black, oh, we getting ready to fight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that wasn't, you know, so you and, and that that generation understood the, the declassifications of what was going on to us educationally mm-hmm. and systemically. So when they talked about the system, when you and I were growing up and they was talking about the system, now they call it systemic racism. But when they was talking about the system, we knew the pitfalls in the educational system. We knew the pitfalls in the health system. We knew the pitfalls politically. Our music was telling us that, 
right? And then at home, yeah, we we had to pass the test in school and get an A on the test that said Christopher Columbus discovered America. But then when we came back home, your mom and dad was telling you, no, nah, that's some that's that's some BS. Yeah, what happened? <laughs> you know, and, and these people that they call in Indians now and all that, we we were always here. These classifications that they've given us, mm-hmm. you know, the European, it tells you in history, the European came over here. We were always here. Now, yes, there was a slave trade also. That happened too. You know, there there were people from 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 Florida all the way to Mexico, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And and so this landmass was always populated before 1492. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have to get back to in terms of teaching history. Yes. I mean real history. Yeah. I mean there's there's beliefs and then there's facts. And just like we believed in Santa Claus, we believe in race. But factually, Santa Claus is not here, neither is race. That's what the science tells us. I want to get back to music, though, for a minute um, and stay on this subject because it's it's fascinating to me. Um, You know, you you talk about some of the the music that we listened to um, growing up. And I one of my favorite artists is Gil Scott Heron. And I and I watched a YouTube interview of him the other day talking about the inspiration for revolution will not be televised. Right. And, you know, if you just listen to that song casually, you think that this is a black man preaching for revolution in the streets and violence, you know. But he said, I was talking about a revolution of the mind. Yes. That's that was the message a revolution of the mind. And so, Isaiah, I know, you know, you grew up on the west side of Chicago. And for those that aren't familiar, the west side of Chicago was probably maybe a little a little rougher, we'll say, than the south side of Chicago, which got that that was all I ever heard of. Oh, south side of Chicago is rough. But the west side was no joke, man. In in 1975, the New York Times said it was one of the worst neighborhoods in the country. That's where you grew up, one of nine, playing ball. So you have a context of that in your background. You've got a young baby face. You you would make a great gangster in a movie because your smile is disarming at while you're while you're killing the enemy you know you, you're smiling you got that baby face right i think you'd make a good gangster but when you see how when you know the music and the inspiration and we were children of the civil rights movement right that benefited school and benefited from jobs and and opportunities even though I had to laugh when I saw that you signed for $1.6 million when you signed with Detroit. And I know that that might look a little bit, that contract might look a little different for an Isaiah Thomas today. But the, the point that I wanted to make in question that I wanted to ask, when you see how hip hop has become a global influence and the artists have become influencers, right, around the world, selling Sprite, selling McDonald's, selling anything, The message, unfortunately, that also got delivered by some of those same artists sent a tough message into our communities. Right. And I know that you have championed an end to gun violence. You have done a lot of I have a list of social programs that you've started. One, I think, in your mom's name. But I I guess the point that I'm trying to make and the question I want to ask is, do you see that that some of that messaging did us a disservice, man? Absolutely. And there's three levels of music generationally that has taken place in all communities. And as you pointed out earlier, you know, 
Unfortunately, in America, our black culture, not all black race, our black culture is exported through sports, music, and entertainment because they don't acknowledge our intellectual capacity in the black race here in America. So the, you know, the, the, the black intellectuals, John Henry Clark, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, they're, they're not studied enough. They're not taught enough. Uh, so we don't, we don't really get a chance to, to really, uh, expand our intellectual vehicle. So the vehicle that we're always placed in, sports and music. Now, the music of the 60s and 70s was telling us to resist, but also inspiring us to be better men, to be better women, be better people. But it was also talking about, you know, I can hey, that if you go back and you listen to Claudine, you know, and, and, and you listen to Mr. Welfare Man, Hey, that that's what happened in my home. The United States government broke up my mom and dad's relationship because we had to go on welfare. And when you go on welfare, guess what? The man has to be out of the house and the social worker comes. And if you listen to those lyrics, when 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 she says they keep on saying I'm a lazy woman, Joe, love my children, but I'm mentally unfit. I must divorce him, cut all my ties with him because his ways, they make me sick. It's a hard sacrifice. They was telling us what was going on. Not only was they telling us what was going on, you know, the fight in this country and it's still today, the classified black man and woman has always been fighting the U.S. government. So when you talk about what was going on on the West Side, well, yeah, our, our community was bad, but this is this is the message that was going on on the West Side. It started with Noble Drew Ali in terms of Moorish Americans introducing the thought and the concepts and scientifically proven that we were always here on this landmass. And, and then it went from there. You had the Black Panther movement come in. Then you had the first original game, the Vice Lords. But all these were community-based organizations. Martin Luther King moved on the West Side for a certain period of time. The only the only college in America right now that's named after Malcolm X is on the West Side of Chicago. So that level of resistance, that level of intelligence, that level of understanding of who we are as a people. That's why the United States government and J. Edgar Hoover came to the West Side and said, we got to stop this movement from happening. And they pitted the South Side against the West Side, put drugs in the community, and, and basically locked up and jailed all the other people. Now, I'm not making this up. If you go and read COINTELPRO, that's, that's the information that came out of the FBI and the government. So I come out of that thought. And, and the last point I'm going to hit, Brad, is when you talked about enslaving the mind. Because during that period of time, there was a resistance. There was a resistance not to have your mind enslaved, but to be free of thought. And they, remember, just like your parents, my parents, some TV they wouldn't let you watch. I'm sure you came up in a house where it's like, no, you can't watch that. You can't listen to that. You can't speak to that. 
were the first messages that came out in hip hop. When hip hop first came out, Grandmaster Flash with the message, right? They were still speaking to, hey, this is what the system does to you. And this is how you got to inter- interact and move. But that message changed in hip hop. And then it started promoting and selling all the negative stereotypes that was happening inside our household, inside the community, that people were always trying to not give into these negative stereotypes. Then the music started promoting the stereotypes. And then when it started promoting the stereotypes to the white larger community, that white community will buy the stereotype and they would buy the stereotype and that's their, that became their music of choice. So Brad, you walking into an office today, they would say you different. <laughs> you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not like other black, black men or women, but we really all the same. But what's been transported and moved out into the international community are the stereotypes, which people think that sets us as a larger group of people. Well said, man. You know, and I've been in the restaurant business my my entire life. And one of the things that I have always felt I've written about a little bit and, um, you know, this last year with restaurants kind of being thrust into the the forefront uh, in terms of the news cycle because of how bad um, the, the COVID affected frontline workers was. I'm, I'm concerned that our stories don't get told. And by example, there was a guy named Thomas Bullock out of Detroit back. And he wrote a, a, a mixology book, a, a, a drink book back in 1917. I only, I've been in the restaurant business my entire life. I studied hotel and restaurant management in college. I'd never heard of this cat, man. Never heard of him. He was in no history book, no cocktail book, no, no nothing. How many of those stories are there? of the accomplishments, the achievements, the, the, the things that would inspire us. My dad was in the restaurant business. I learned it from him. I know he didn't know about Thomas Bullock. Would he have approached the, the cocktails, the bar side of our business different had he known that this gentleman had done something like that in 1917? I guess the, the, you know, the point Isaiah that I'm making here is how do we start to affect this narrative in the way that um, is going to have just a, a different impact. And I, again, I, I allude to the social programs that you bravely started and continue to be a part of um, all throughout your community. But what, what's needed here, man? What do, what do we need to do? What do we need to be talking about? And who do we need to be talking with and to? I, I'll, I'll go back to <clears throat> some of your first comments earlier in this conversation where you say you, when you were growing up, you never walked past a brother without acknowledging him or her. Or speaking to him, you know, there was a amount of human decency that we always fight to maintain, to keep, keyword to keep with each other. Well, we always looked at each other as human and not less than. And over time, through our educational system, through all cultural breakdowns, we have failed to continue to look at our brothers and sisters as as humans. And we fell into what white supremacy and what the classified white has always wanted to move us into a space where we are less than human. And then they don't have to do the work. We're doing the work for them by treating each other the way we're treating each other. You know, I, I still to this day, 
will not allow anyone to call me the N-word. No, that whether you, I don't care what classified color you are, don't ever call me that. I, I don't accept that. And and we gotta we gotta raise all standards of how we treat each other first. And and once we do that, then we gotta get back to to studying. We gotta get back to really understanding our history because the educational system, like you just said, there was a brother who digged a cocktail book mm-hmm. and you never knew of him. Well, that's no accident. It's set up that way. Mm-hmm. And and I, I never forget my father used to always say and it, it never it never dawned on me until I was about maybe, you know, 27, 28 years old. And he said, Junior, every time you watch television and every book you read, understand this. You are classified as black in America. They're not talking to you. <laughs> Pops. <laughs> Pops Thomas. I love that. You talk about uh, the, the N-word. And, I, you know, it's funny. I was sitting in my car the other day. I had um, I was listening to Richard Pryor from one of his first albums. Uh, he used the N-word in the title. But it brought me back in, in one of his bits that was very funny. But it brought what you just said brought me back to when Richard came back from Africa. And he decided he was not going to use the N-word anymore because he quoted, you know, he didn't see any N-words over in Africa. And he, you know, it just it forced him into rethinking, you know, our acceptance and use of that word. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I want to read something, Isaiah, because you have this long list of account, philanthropic work, community minded work. This one, you know, I thought just really kind of summed it up. And in February uh, of 2017, you were presented with the AT&T Humanity of Connection Award during its annual Black History Month celebration in honor of Louis H. Latimer at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington. You were honored for your historic achievement in sports and your countless contributions to the African-American community as a leader in the sports, business, and philanthropic interests. That That's pretty major, man. What, what did, what did, how did that strike you and what did that mean to you to, to receive that honor? It, it, it was a great honor and it, I, I guess it, uh, it was one of the highest honors that I have ever received because, you know, in the sports world, um, you know, you win a championship, you get a trophy, you do what what you need to do to win the basketball game, and you are applauded and and rewarded for that. I always said that if if all I'm remembered for is playing basketball when I die, then I've done a bad job with the rest of my life. If the only thing that people can say about Isaiah Thomas when I die is, man, he could shoot, man, he could really dribble, and that's all you have to say with the rest of my life, I've done a really bad job. So receiving that award, uh, award, you know, it just allowed me to think that I was on the right path of being remembered for other things than just playing basketball. Well, brother, you could shoot and dribble and do all those things, no doubt, uh, better than, than almost everyone else. But the fact that those other things matter to you as much as they do, um, I know is, is going to be a, a big 
way of how people remember you when they when they talk about you. At this point, I want to bring in uh, a dear friend of both of ours. And normally I, I have her come in at the tail end of the show and we kind of summarize and then she gives a few travel tips. But because you guys are friends, you two are friends, and this is your a, a really special guest for us, I'm going to ask Ambassador Shabazz to join us in a I know that you both had a you worked on a little something together, I think, in Belize. But, Ambassador, I'm going to let you jump in and say hello to Isaiah and, and let you guys engage in a little bit of back and forth uh, at this point. Well, thank you for having me on the corner table. And I want to welcome Professor Thomas uh, for <laughs> this past missive. And nothing could be more exciting for me to spend time with people I respect. And this is plural. This goes to both of you. You know, I've grown up with you, uh, Mr. Johnson, and our relationship has, for me, been most significant in so many familial um, and dedicated ways. And just, you know, ha having this opportunity to share, even this forum is really key. And to have started a new relationship maybe about seven or eight years ago with Isaiah Thomas has been rich from the beginning. From the absolute, we were brought together for a formal reason having to do with the WNBA. And from the moment we had dinner, I knew I had a little brother with me forever. Just absolutely earnest, authentic, clear, definitive, and someone that I knew I could just back and be backed by 100% without having second thought. Be experiencing you, I'm going to call you Professor Thomas because of these last 40 minutes and what you've shared, experiencing you and your dedication to the young women on the New York Liberty, where I had the, the blessing and the fortune to spend some time and do some life coaching and watching you as not a player, not as a headline, but in full action as a father dedicated. I mean, I, 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 all of them have that cheese, that smile he has. They all have it. Watching him as a husband, but also watching him as a real steward on behalf of the wellness and the proper treatment and the advocacy for female players. I was all in. And so I just want to say welcome to the corner table. And, and the fact that the two of you get to exchange with each other, two people that are significant in my life, having the opportunity as brethren to share and as Africans in the Western Hemisphere to find link and coexistence and that we cannot feel as isolated. I want to go back to that time when we met and a restaurant you took me to in Hell's Kitchen. What was that? Was it one of your spots? Actually, it was one of Lauren's spots. She suggested okay. it. Um, I don't remember the name of it, but um, I do remember that 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 dinner and it was was quite impactful for me. And, um, you know, thank, thank you for just being so open and honest from day one and, uh, all the help, uh, you've given to, to my family and myself and, and, you know, Lauren and Lynn, you, you've been, um, you've been, you've been, a, you've been a true sister for real. Well, it's really you. You know, I mean, all, all of us live and navigate in this world and we we are never um, justice is never done when we have a headline that defines us or a paragraph that defines us. And when you meet people and they are naturally authentic and giving, it was such an easy accord 
for me. And listening to the content of this conversation, as I was sharing with Mr. Johnson over the last couple of years, I'm, I'm sure I've referenced it, but certainly in preparation for this, that this is not a regular conversation, nor is he as a restaurateur. I mean, people don't know the full of us. You all have talked about the fact that we have one-liners associated to who we are, but never the dimension of who we are as Africans in the Western Hemisphere. Right. What is that narrative? You know, so I don't have a discomfort of being called black because I kind of like it. But because for me, black does not have a negative connotation. So now it's understanding that even if you refer to people by hues or tones, that it can't have a classification, which you all reference. It should not be a vertical classification, but it could be a descriptive one if you're looking for somebody up the block, around the corner or right. <laughs> or whatever, right? But then it might be an, a, a black person from Ghana, a black person from the North, a black person from the so-and-so, but none of that should have a negative. So what we should possibly do is learn about the values of who we are so that when, so when black is not a classification, but an adjective, it's a referential point, it's the high five or the familiarity that you can use in the cultural narrative of a story. And I want to thank you also because during some of our conversations, much like this, you, on behalf of your mother's foundation and another mutual friend, Mignon Moore, sponsored a delegation of four um, American young people in the culinary hospitality industry to journey for a fellowship in Belize that I have to say, that was in 2018. It's the gift that keeps giving. It changed and shifted their immersion, their self-perception and life, you know. Um, and I'd like to know more about what Mary's Court is doing. Well, what, what we're doing now is is continue to uh, immerse ourselves in the, in the educational space um, and in seeking out ways to bring out you know, truer information about, you know, Africans on this side of, of, of the globe and, you know, what what our journey has been um, here in America. And, you know, just just trying to educate and, and, and free the mind and and not fall into the beliefs of the narratives and stories that you've been told, but introducing other books, introducing other writers, introducing other people who have really, you know, studied. My goal right now is to find as much information, you know, about John Henry Clark to introduce uh, to to kids in school at a very young age, to introduce some, uh, you know, Dr. Francis Wesley's work to 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 young kids in school, just so they understand the system that we're in. Because I think if, just as we did when we were younger, if we understand the system, the way that we're being governed legally uh, and the way the political system works, you know, if we collectively come together, we can navigate our way through this system. But if you don't understand how the system is working against you, it's gonna continue to uh, open up the pit holes for you to fall into, you know. So when we do ever have, if we ever have the race conversation, then the race conversation will have to be followed by a change of the system. Because if we don't change the system, then we're going to continue to be in this condition as classified black people in America. And the more information that we have about ourselves, the origin information, I mean, I was blessed in my life to start with the, the, the truth or closest to the truth. So I didn't have an identi identity 
that was based on a comparative existence. I didn't start with that. That came later when I started to see how those, uh, how the classifications of people of color, all peoples of color, including white, were in vertical caste system form. I learned that outside the house, but I did not learn that in the house. So my value as I entered the world as a black person, there was something quite wonderful. And that wasn't based on hue. That wasn't based on what percent. That was just based on root self seed as mm. the glory of being African in the Western hemisphere. And I was, always, I still have that, right? So when I think about the two young men, two young women, we had an immersion that engaged the culinary aspect. So they weren't just cooks, right? They weren't just learning how to move the pan around. They were really in the garden. They were in the farms. They were doing agribusiness and the processing thereof. How does this show up traditionally? I wanted them to hold on to the Caribbean tradition of foods. And how does that show up in the upscale resorts? And then how do you make it fun food accessible for the American delegation of 40 young Black um, boys, that came, teenagers that came over that weren't used to food that wasn't processed. And just keeping the narrative of heritage, the narrative of story, the narrative of tradition, same ingredients and moving them around. And I tell you, it was such a, the food justice component even, you know, the balance of distribution of food was just really a rich experience for them. And because of the distance geographically, you have not been able to sit down with them. And I can't wait till there's that round table in person. You said you like to hug. I know we got to dap differently nowadays, <laughs> but I can't wait for you to see how your impact has touched younger people who represented three different countries themselves, re respectively, two are first generation American and two were in the culinary industry and it, their lives have been changed forever. That that is that is always good to know uh, because you 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 never know who you're touching and you never know who those people will grow up to be. But the fact that you can that you can help and extend uh, your your kindness and it reaches you know miles away. Uh, it, again, that just shows you the power of love. Shows you the power of of kindness and giving. And and when that is extended and people receive it and give it back and give it out to others, that's a beautiful and powerful thing. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, we are, um, thank you for that. And we are, you know, I knew this would come too, too quickly as we were approaching the end, but one of the things that, that um, occurs to me as I'm listening to you both and, and looking at you on the screen, although our, our listeners will only hear the audio of this, is, you know, one of the advantages or the unintended, I would say good effects of this past year has been this technology that has allowed us to see one another and talk to one another from wherever we are. And Isaiah, you know, your willingness to come on this program and, and speak with us both, you know, one of the things that I felt has been missing for, you know, for our culture in the past, you know, however many years since we lost magazines like Jet and we don't have a central voice and the world is moving so fast, right? We have these devices in our hands and we're checking all of these different things and so much information is flying at us. But the value of conversation, you know, just taking a moment to talk to someone and listen to the response and have a back and forth. So 
I, I, I hope that you've enjoyed this as much as we have. And uh, I'm just really, really grateful that you've taken time out of your busy schedule to uh, to join the ambassador and I and uh, just want to say thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, and I hope we continue this conversation and do it again. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining Ambassador Shabazz and I on Corner Table Talk this week. That was special, huh? He was pretty cool. Absolutely. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, we'll be back uh, with our How We Move segment in our next uh, episode of of Corner Table Talk. But uh, thank you, Isaiah Thomas, for joining us. And thank you, Ambassador Shabazz, as always, for your insights and taking part. My pleasure. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Coordinating producer, Lauren Turner. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.